We know that the Lord is at work in the world and that he brings order from chaos, that he brings uh, joy from suffering, that he turns sin into glory. And yet it's one thing to see the work of God in our own life. But what about in a community? It's important to know that the church community that you belong to is actually a work of the Holy Spirit, that the house has been built by God, that the laborers are not laboring in vain, that the Holy Spirit is there and that church It's not just a bunch of busy work. A lot of people looking like they're doing something, but nothing gets accomplished. Uh, Plenty of churches appear to have life. They may have elegant buildings, amazing music, dynamic preaching, attractive people. They might be a little church or they might be a mega church. But the outward man can be deceiving. Men, as we know, look on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. What stops these churches, from being a whitewashed tomb. More provocatively, what stops our church from being a whitewashed tomb? See, a church might look ornate and beautiful from the outside, but if you investigate a little closer, you might get a whiff of something rotting. So how can we know that you are a part of a genuine work of God? And Peter has an answer for us here in our passage today, and it's really a simple answer. It's one word, love. Peter, as we know, has completed one of the most amazing and rich descriptions of the gospel. I hope you have been caught off guard by the beauty of the message that we have, and you've been held captive by the desire to have God at work in your life. But Peter now turns to one of the most overlooked results of the gospel in people's lives, and that is love, and a particular kind of love. It's a barometer to which you can feel the pressure of the room, The thermometer which tells you if a church is hot or cold or merely lukewarm. It's the test to see if theology has made its way to our fingertips or terminated in the mind. It's the standard by which we are all called to submit. If you want to know that you are a part of a work of the Holy Spirit, the first thing you want to be looking for is love. And if it is not there, then some red flags ought to go up. And so I've got three uh, points that I want to lead you guys through as we get into our passage today. My first point is this, a household of love. My second point, a household established by God. And number three, a household established forever. So our first point, a household of love. Let's get into our passage. We're going to read the first uh, two verses of our passage, 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. See, Peter, as we know from chapter one, he's been presupposing that everything he's talking about is a true reality of the churches he's writing to. He's expecting that those churches embody or at least have to some degree the kinds of things he's been talking about. And here he does it again. He expects that the gospel has had such an effect on the hearts of his readers that they have purified their souls in obedience to the truth. And this is something that has happened in the past. It's, he says here, having purified your souls. Now, if your soul needs purifying, then Peter is assuming that there is some level of defilement there. There's some level of corruption within your soul. Something has contaminated it and you have to have something happen to you in order to remove it. That defilement has to be removed. And what is it removed by? 
It is not removed uh, by our devotion to God or our good morals or our good works because we know no amount of effort or work from humans can possibly purify ourselves. Peter says here, it is the word of God. In fact, there's a few more adjectives to it. The living and abiding word of God. At the end of our passage, Peter calls that the gospel. It's the gospel that purifies a people. Now, many hear the truth of the gospel. Many affirm its truthfulness. Many say amen when they hear it. But until they submit to it and until they obey it, they are never purified by it. It never finds its place in your soul and it never uh, causes you to be, in, Peter says here, born again. And this is what he describes as being born again. It's when the Holy Spirit comes into someone's life, convinces them of their impurity and sin, and empowers them to repent, to turn to Jesus for forgiveness. And he expects there to be a little bit of evidence that comes out of that work having happened. And what does he call it here? A sincere brotherly love. The work of the Spirit, our response in obedience and faith, results in a love for the saints, a love that was not there before, a love that we did not have, but now we have. The new Christian is all of a sudden filled with love for God's people and a strong desire to be with them. It's this Greek word, Philadelphian, which is where we get the you know names like the city Philadelphia and other things like that, but it's this word that means brotherly love. It's the love that exists between family members, siblings, well, Hopefully, I don't know what your, how your situation was growing up, but hopefully there was love between you and your siblings. And it's a sense of the loyalty, the commitment that comes from a strong family. And you want to imagine this family, the kind of love he's talking about is a tight-knit family, a family that love each other, a family that want to be with each other, that family that has each other's back and will fight for each other if necessary. And he uses this word sincere, we have tra- translated here for us, and uh, the Greek word is anupokritos, which is where we get the word hypocrisy. But there's an A at the front of it, so it negates it. It means without hypocrisy. He's saying you need to be loving your brothers, your brethren, your brothers and sisters in Christ without hypocrisy. It's not a pretend love. It's not a false love. It's not uh, feigned. It's heartfelt. It's sincere. It's honest. And so you want to be on the lookout for that kind of hypocritical, insincere love. These kind of people, rather than kindness, they will practice flattery. Rather than correction, there's criticism. Rather than depth, there's a superficiality. Rather than reliability, there's flakiness. Rather than reconciliation, there's defamation. And Peter here is assuming the genuine Christian has been saved to a sincere, not non-hypocritical, goodness, love. But he doesn't stop there. He encourages the Christian. He says, don't let that love waste away. You've been saved for this. You've ascertained this. This has come to you by the Holy Spirit. Now love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is a job for you to do. It's an imperative. It's a command. This is what you must be doing. Don't let it grow cold. And I found it really fascinating, this word earnestly, More literally, it means fervently, but it really carries this meaning of being fully stretched. Something stretched to, uh, not to breaking point, but something that is getting some use. Something that is uh, constantly being used, constantly uh, exerting some level of effort. Uh, You want to think of it like muscles. If you don't stretch them, they become brittle and worn. 
I'm sure you just have to ask some of the men at church to reach down and touch their toes and you'll know that their hammies haven't been used very much in the last few years. Don't let that happen to your love. Don't let your love be so underutilized, become so brittle and worn out that when you stretch it, oh, it might start breaking. All of a sudden, it might not stick around. Love your brothers and sisters as you did at first and grow more consistent in it. Don't get brittle. Don't get worn out in your love for the saints. It is our duty. It's not an optional extra. It's not something we can be like, oh, I feel like it today, so I'm going to show love to these particular people, not these other ones. That's not what is going on here. Jesus says in John 13, 35, By this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Every church established by the Spirit of Christ will reflect their Savior, a Savior that they claim to know and they claim to love. When we want to look for a work of God, before we look anywhere else, we must first look at ourselves. Well, before we try to take the speck out of our brother's eyes, we have to be making sure that we're doing some log removals in our own eyes. Are we desperately looking for a loving community, not realizing that we ourselves are devoid of love? Until individuals are stretching their loves and getting their stretches in, you can't expect a church to magically start doing it. But when they do, something amazing happens. And that's my second point, a household established by God. Let's come back to verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news, the gospel that was preached to you. Now, a few things that we can observe here. Firstly, all Christians are born again. This is something that is common to all Christians who trust in God. And this means that we are grafted into a new household and we are brothers and sisters in a new birth. There's a saying, you know, blood is thicker than water. And I stole this from um, Sam Swaddling, if you guys remember him, but he always said, the spirit is thicker than blood. Our church, uh, our church family is an eternal family. It is one that will last with us into eternity. And if by the grace of God, your family members are also Christians with you, you share that same camaraderie, that same eternal family with them as well. And it's the word of God and the gospel that is the means of regeneration that brings us about. James says something similar in James 1.18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It's by God's will, it's by the word of truth that these things are being brought forth. It's far superior to our first birth. We are not born of perishable seed. The unfortunate reality is that our mothers in the flesh gave birth to flesh. And just like the grass in the field, it's glorious for a time when the flowers come out, but eventually all the grass fades. Even the most enduring species of grass will only last for about five years. We do not follow in the futile ways of our forefathers or walk in the deeds of the flesh, but rather we abide in the living word of God. Together we are sons and daughters of the Most High. If we by nature love our family who are naturally given to us, 
how much more ought we to love the new family given to us in God? But how can we know if we're really loving people the way that we ought to be loving people? What standard do we measure our love by? Who can come along and tick, tick off the list and say, oh, yep, that person there, yep, they are loving the way that God has called us to love. Now, one of the things that I was most worried about when we brought Susie home was how well Calvin would receive her. And I was pleased to see that he showed quite an overwhelming amount of love to her. Uh, and key phrase, overwhelming. Uh, he treated her with a mixture of wonder and uh, appreciation, uh, but it was a bit enthusiastic, to put it lightly. As much as he appreciated her, his vigorous pats, his energetic kisses, his lively hugs and intense bounces in her baby bouncer seemed to elicit more reactions from his parents and his sister than, uh, than he wanted it to. Uh, he had a vague idea of how to love his sister, but he didn't really know how to practice it. He didn't really know how to make it work. Uh, we can appreciate the heart for it. But sometimes our love can be like a whisper, and other times, for instance, in Calvin's case, it can be a bit more like a bulldozer. Yet we are not left in the dark on how to love. I mean, you don't have to look very far to see in our culture that love ranks very highly. If you start talking about love to someone on the street, you'll get their wholehearted amen, won't you? They'll be like, yep, I agree with everything you say. Love is so important. It's really important to love people. That's just something that's kind of like baked into our culture. Uh, people readily say how much they love everyone. They'll say, I love everyone. I don't hate anyone. Make big, grandiose claims like that. Uh, they'll talk about how much they love their partner or they love their children or they love their community. Uh, but the first question that should always arise when someone says stuff like that is, by what standard are they loving? Who gets to measure it? Who gets to measure whether or not that person is actually loving them? Who gets to look into that situation and say, ah, yes, that is the kind of love that God is talking about here. The Beatles famously wrote a song called All You Need Is Love, which I give a hearty amen to, that sentiment. But you kind of have to ask the question, whose love are we talking about? Is it going to be John Lennon's love or Jesus's love? See, the kind of love you want to see both in your own life and in the life of a community is a love defined by Jesus and reflected by him and his word. As Jesus says in John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is how we're made holy. This is how we're taught how to love. And how can you know if you are part of a genuine work of the Holy Spirit? Well, you need to look for a love according to the scriptures. You can't look for a love according to the way that you feel or what gives you the heebie-jeebies or makes you get butterflies or makes you feel good about yourself. You have to look to the scriptures and say, God, what are you teaching us about love? And then it gets a little spicy, doesn't it? Because the Bible kind of calls you to love in some pretty spicy uh, kind of countercultural ways. What do you see when you look at the marriages in a church community? Do you see Ephesians 5.25? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Are husbands growing in their sacrificial love for their wives? Or are the husbands in the church community apathetic, deflated, domineering, or absent? Do they live in an understanding way with them? Peter will put later in 1 Peter 3. Are the women in the church like Titus 2, 4 to 5? 
older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Do we see the women growing in a gentle and quiet spirit that is precious to God? Do they prioritize their vocation as wives and as mothers? Are they respecting their husbands or do they, do, do they dishonor them at every chance they get? See, these are the kind of things you want to see in a church that is growing in the Holy Spirit. You want to see these kind of loves defined by Scripture. Do children love and obey their parents? Do children stick it out in the faith? Do fathers take an interest in their children and educate and bring up their children in the training and admonition of the Lord? Do Christian employees work from a sincere heart and not offer up eye service? Do the Christian employers operate justly and fairly? These are the things that you find all throughout the New Testament, repeated again and again and again. It's not just a one isolated incident. Every time you get to a book like Ephesians or Colossians or Titus or 1 Timothy or 1 Peter, they'll talk about the gospel and the transformation of the gospel. And then they'll talk about what that transformation looks like. And that's when a lot of people go, oh, I liked it better when love was vague. I liked it better when I just had to have nice, warm feelings towards people rather than being held to a standard. Purified believers are saved to a sincere brotherly love. And this is a love you can taste and feel. You should see its effects in marriages, families, workplaces, and in the Sunday gatherings. What about the way that the Apostle Paul puts it? Very similar language. Romans 12, 9 to 11. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Very similar words. It's almost like they collaborated on that. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And this one we hear a lot. 1 Corinthians 13.4-7 Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You listen to that language being described here. This is the kind of brotherly affection, brotherly love that you can taste, that you can experience and know that God is here with us. It's well-stretched love, and it is one of the best barometers that yes, you are in the middle of a work of the Holy Spirit. And red flags should go up as soon as you notice churches minimizing the kind of distinct love that the Bible gives us. A lot of churches, in order to keep, they want to keep the definition as vague. They want to keep it as non-confrontational as possible. And they focus on less controversial things. But the insanity is these churches will claim to be doing these things out of love for their people. But at the end, they're robbing their people of love itself. The Bible gives us so many things to stretch our love, to grow us in our faith. 
And what a shame to be kneecapped. Leads me to my third point. A household established forever. Let's pick up in verse 24. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. When the word of God dwells richly within a people, Peter's saying here that it's going to last into eternity. That the, the seed that's planted now is imperishable and it's going to keep growing and that growth is actually exponential and will keep uh, heading in a positive, sanctifying, holy direction. And he reminds the church, he reminds us, that sitting next to you are immortal, eternal souls, brothers and sisters, who will one day possess a glory unimaginable. And when the Word of God dwells with the people, they are not only transformed by it, but they persevere in it. They are animated by it. It invigorates them. It propels them forward until it brings them safely home across the other side. It will remain true forever. It will abide in the hearts of the regenerate forever. And yet Peter reminds us of the world that we have just come from. He reminds the the Christians in those churches of the world that they just came from. And to do that, he quotes Isaiah 40, 6-7. And his point is this, mankind at its best, at its most glorious, at its most productive and brilliant and marvelous is still withering, fading and dying All for all its glory. And there is glory there. They all come to ruin, whether they're greatest kingdoms and empires or greatest cities. When I was in New Zealand, uh, it's kind of annoying, but you guys will probably be like, oh, just stop. But anyway, I was um, headed down a road and there were all these beautiful purple flowers. And I feel like every 50 Ks or so, there were like 20 cars parked on the side of the road. and Everyone's getting out and taking, uh, taking photos of them in front of these flowers. It was quite a beautiful sight. And I was always frustrated by it because I want to get through and get to where we're going. We're on a, you know, we're on an itinerary. Anyway, uh, but you see that there was this beauty in the, in these fields, but it was momentary. They, those flowers would eventually wither and fall once summer is over and winter sets in. And in that area, a lot of snow was going to fall. And you can bet that those grasses are going to fade. Now, Matthew Henry says this, talking about mankind. He says, take him in all of his glory. Even this is the flower of grass, his wit, beauty, strength, vigor, wealth, honor. These are but as the flower of grass, which soon withers and dies away. See, the only way to solve this predicament and to rescue mankind from corruption and decay is to receive the living and abiding word of God. And that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This alone can bring a person into everlasting life. This message of truth, which was first preached to the churches in Asia Minor, has now been preached to you. Same message. And the same power that holds these Christians safe in everlasting arms is the same power that breathes life into individuals and families and communities and nations. For as long as the Word of God abides, so also does all it touches remain. And so why on earth would you want to be part of a movement where God is not there? It withers and fades. Why on earth would you want to belong to a people that are not transformed by His love? 
What could, you possi- what could possibly compel a Christian to dwell with the grass who is here today and gone tomorrow? Peter is calling us at the end of chapter 1 to reflect on the power of the gospel. Has it taken hold on our own lives? Has it transformed us to a sincere brotherly love? And do we see that effect writ large in the church? And if not, we can't wallow in despair. We can't say, woe is me. Look at this situation I find myself in. Peter tells us the way to build something that will last into eternity is for it to be built on the foundation of the gospel. This magnificent message that breathes life into everything it touches. This is what he says. All of 1 Peter chapter 1. And Peter says, and this was the good news, the gospel preached to you. Jesus says this wonderful thing in Matthew 7, verses 24 to 25. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. That's where we want our houses. That's where we want our lives. That's where we want our families. So how do we build a house on the rock? Jesus tells us, if you hear these words of mine and do them, you have to come to Jesus. You have to hear the things he says and you have to say amen at the end of everything he says, even if it comes at great cost to you. You have to say yes I want to be where you are because even if I have all this glory and wealth like the flowers of the fields, I know it's going to wither. I can't hold on to it. I can't keep it. But your word lasts forever. Practically, that looks like coming to Jesus. You have to open the New Testament and you have to devour the Gospels. You have to learn to love others the way that he loves Not as you imagine he would, but as you see him do it. You have to hear his words. And when he tells you and directs you, you say, okay, Lord, I will go and I will do it. As Peter says, this is the word of God preached to you. And if you obey this word, you will find a sincere brotherly love easily there at your right hand. You'll find it easy to love one another from an earnest heart as you stretch that love and you grow in leaps and bounds in your ability to love your immediate neighbors, your family, your church, as God has called you to do it. And you will do it by His standard, not by your own feelings or what the culture says. Let's pray. Father, it's a sobering reality that all the things of this world will one day fade away like the flowers of the grass. And sometimes, Lord, we can see all the glory that we have here in this world, all the amazing things that we have, the distractions, um, but sometimes things of enduring beauty, Lord. And often we can get so caught up in this world and not think of the eternal kingdom that has invaded this world and is turning it upside down.
Lord, will we not be found longing and pining after the world that will pass away, but rather, Lord, enraptured and in love with the world that is to come. And Lord, as this world comes and, and finds a place in our heart, Lord, I pray that it will do its work and bring its work into completion and that we will love each other, that this love will not be unfeigned, that it will not be hypocritical, Lord, but it would be truthful, sincere, genuine. I pray, Lord, for those of us who know you and love you and have been called into that, I pray that we would not grow brittle and worn out in our love for our brethren, but Lord, that you would help us to warm up that muscle and stretch it again. Pray, Lord, that we would find ourselves in genuine works of your Holy Spirit, that we would find that Holy Spirit work at work in our own lives and in our families. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they would be encouraged, that they would be uh, pumped, Lord, to once again do the things you have called them to do. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all the things you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.